I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And I'm Sam Tracy. And thanks for tuning in to season four of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project produced by alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an international student-led organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We envision a world in which our laws and attitudes surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this week's show. As always, we'll start off with news, headlines, and forecasts with Sam and Rochelle. Then it's me, your friendly podcast producer, Tyler Williams, with the SSDP Peer Education segment on caffeine. And finally, a roundtable discussion with Jason Ortiz of the Minority Cannabis Business Association and Scott Cecil of Students for Sensible Drug Policy about uh, racial justice in the marijuana industry and drug policy reform community. Thanks for being here and enjoy the show. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Rochelle and I are going to go over some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week and talk about some exciting things that are coming up in the weeks ahead. Uh, So Rochelle, do you want to start things off with our first big story? Absolutely, Sam. So at its annual meeting this last week, the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs added two chemicals to its list of international controlled substances, which are the precursors in the making of fentanyl. So fentanyl, as anyone who's been paying attention to drug news knows, um, has been gaining international attention this past year because it's often the deadly ingredient in opioid overdoses. Um, But already, substance abuse experts are pushing back on the CND's decision to add these uh, chemicals to their controlled substances list. According to one doctor, Dr. Evan Wood, a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia and the director of the BC Center on Substance Use, quote, you can't get out of a problem with the same kind of thinking that got you into the problem, end quote. Mm -hmm. So, So what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I I certainly agree with that quote, just that this seems like a continuation of the sort of whack-a-mole policy of trying to ban individual substances. Uh, But then, I mean, we're all talking, these are all synthetic opioids. um, And so it's pretty... I wouldn't say easy, I'm not like a biochemist, but it's it's very possible to create new versions of these that get around these uh, with loopholes and uh, oftentimes are much more harmful than the thing that gets banned in the first place. So I feel like this probably will just be leading to some other thing being substituted in there and really the, the actual problem just continuing. Yeah, one thing, uh, one interesting thing that uh, Dr. Wood also pointed out is that the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which just made this decision, was actually created originally to crack down on opium. Um, Mm. And that specific response has partly contributed to the rise of the use of other drugs like heroin and the development of synthetic drugs like fentanyl itself, um, Mm -hmm. exactly as you predicted. So what he said um, further was that anytime you focus on the supply side of a market, Um, That has the perverse effect of inciting innovation um, and the creation of new synthetic um, alternatives, as as you pointed out, Sam. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this also, 
we have to look at the enforcement of these because I know that in a lot of cases, these drugs and precursors get banned, but they do, you know, get continued to be produced in places like China that have uh, much larger industrial sectors that sometimes aren't as uh, policed uh, as closely as in a lot of other countries. And so can still these things can still be produced, but just gets driven into this kind of gray market where a lot of industrial companies are, are, are still producing it and then shipping it under different names and that sort of thing. Uh, so it does, it is kind of like a feel good legislation, I feel in terms of, oh, now we've banned fentanyl and it'll go away. But in reality, not even it will go away either. And I, I do think this plays into a larger conversation that we've um, both had explicitly and maybe kind of more alluded to on our show before about um mm-hmm. the like the false distinction that's created between users versus producers of substances like on an individual mm-hmm. basis and on a on a more global perspective how um we may be taking a softer approach to drug use in consumer countries but in production side countries like it's still very violent and the mm-hmm. war wages on and those are kind of the ones that you're targeting even though production countries are often uh poorer countries um, mm-hmm. like in South America or in China or in East Asia, like, uh, like what you've said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a very different, when, when we talk about drug problems in those different countries, it is basically talking about very different types of problems. And so moving on down into our next story, uh, this one in the United States is that a marijuana industry market research firm called Cannabis Consumer Group, uh, which seems to be relatively new since I hadn't heard of them before, uh, they've put out a report that predicts marijuana legalization will lead to lower beer sales. So they get this from what they call their Canna Use Study, which has 40,000 participants and asks people about their marijuana consumption habits. In this study, 27% of respondents, so about one in four, either said that cannabis replaces beer in their lives or that it would be a replacement if it were legal to purchase in their state. Uh, so cannabis consumer group, they also say that they uh, or they project this uh, to eventually lead to a 7% drop in beer sales once marijuana legalization becomes more widespread. Um, so I thought this was a really interesting story because the whether or not alcohol and marijuana are substitutes or complements is, is really an ongoing question that I think is really interesting. But I do also want to throw this out with a big disclaimer because uh, this canna use study that this is based off uh, isn't publicly available on their website and is probably, it seems to be something you have to purchase. Uh, But they also don't list the price on the website and just an email address to reach out to to get more information. So I feel like that means one of two things, either that it's incredibly expensive and they're trying to sell you on it um, or that it's very low quality and they don't actually want to publicize the the methodology and stuff here. So can't vouch for it either way, but this is something that's been uh, concluded by others. So I think it's worth talking about. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. It was a big part of the discussion around uh, so- social use uh, clubs mm-hmm. and legislation or like what models of social use to to pursue uh, back in when I was living in Denver and working on the 300 campaign last year um, mm-hmm. because uh, the proponents of the initiative 300 campaign for example like strongly believe that people who use cannabis are still going to want to mix and socialize with their friends who are drinking alcohol um, Mm -hmm. or want to use both substances at the same time and that this is a natural um, 
way to bring people together to use their mm-hmm. their own substances and that it doesn't make sense to create like cannabis only consumption lounges where you wouldn't be able to use any alcohol at all and that people mm-hmm. wouldn't want um you know that there wouldn't be a great demand for the type of person who uses cannabis exclusively without any alcohol or that wants to socialize with other cannabis users exclusively Right. Yeah, because that is a good point, because going back to because not even necessarily talking about using them at the same time, but going back to I think what we talked about last week, that survey about students and their uh, drug habits and their test scores, but that they couldn't find anyone who only used marijuana and didn't consume alcohol like they couldn't find enough to make that a relevant sample size. So it does seem that most cannabis users are also alcohol users or at least fine with being around other people that use alcohol. And so separating those out probably isn't going to be the the best way to approach this although i know in denver the uh, city council i think or maybe the state legislature was trying to make sure that those stay separated even with social use and so that is a little too bad to see if they are trying to keep uh uh typical alcohol bars away from the the cannabis side of things Mm -hmm. i do think we should be completely transparent about the public safety side though because i think oftentimes Mm -hmm. um you know our movement is criticized for not taking actual risks of substance use into sufficient account and that i think Mm -hmm. studies have consistently showed that mixing alcohol and cannabis um and driving are is like far more dangerous than um either solo cannabis use and driving or even Mm -hmm. alcohol use and driving so um you know if this is the reality we are facing um you know Mm -hmm. which is that then, you know, that's something we do need to take account and like make people more aware of and promote as far as like public um, education. But I, mm-hmm. I, it's interesting to see that beer sales um, are projected to drop, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people are switching over entirely to exclusively cannabis use, right? That, ju- that could just mean that they're not buying as much beer as they normally would, but are still maybe consuming mm-hmm. both. Yeah, and there was um, one other study that found that there, the biggest drops in Colorado beer sales after uh, legalization of marijuana was implemented were Coors Light and Bud Light, which are, you know, kind of like the budget brands that uh, people who are much more price sensitive, who don't have a lot of money to spend on alcohol and cannabis uh, are probably buying. Um, and so because of that, I think that Part of it is kind of a, oh, I'd much rather use marijuana, but it's illegal, so I'll drink more alcohol. Um, but I think also part of it is just a budgetary thing. And so once there's more options, people probably it just loses market share, uh, which is kind of a natural thing for any incumbent product like that. Definitely. So something to keep our eye on as um, more states legalize. Moving mm-hmm. on to our next story, after a six-month-long investigation... This past week, a group of parents uncovered one of the largest mass graves in the history of Mexico's drug war. So in the Gulf state of Veracruz, the group of volunteers, which is mostly made up of parents and family members of um, drug war victims who have disappeared, found more than 250 skulls in shallow graves right outside a current expansion of the city's major commercial seaport. So this is right outside a huge construction area. Um, Mm. This group was formed after families became frustrated with the government officials and law enforcement apathy towards their disappeared family members and loved ones and and official investigations were either slow or non-existent. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is, I mean, I think this is very symbolic of how um, 
you know, we've done we've done other stories on the ongoing drug war um, in Mexico and how so much of that is exacerbated or, um, you know, in many ways it's a it's a exportation of drug violence from mm-hmm. here in the United States to down below the border. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Sam? Right. Lots of lots yeah. of dynamics going on here. Yeah, like, I mean, this is such a saddening and terrifying kind of story and does just go back to what we were saying a couple stories ago of how this is not the type of problem we face in the U.S. Because, I mean, we do have some uh, drug market related violence in in cities in terms of controlling territory, that sort of thing, but not at this scale. Um, I mean, you'd never find, you know, a mass grave with 250 people killed in an outside an American city or something like that. I mean, it's just a completely different scale of violence they're dealing with. In in Mexico, I think it's over 50,000 people have been killed since uh, 2004 when they really started militarizing Mm -hmm. uh, in their drug war. And so because of that, there's so much violence and corruption on, on both sides, uh, including the government, mm-hmm. um, that a lot of the times these, these things don't get uh, uh, investigated, just like those, uh, the students who disappeared a few years ago. Yeah, and the, the, the disappeared students is actually a really interesting um, other point or of connection to make to this mass grave. Um, so, of course, mm-hmm. we're talking about the disappearance of 43 student teachers in the state of Guerrero in 2014, um, and that actually marked a turning point because that is when an impromptu search party, um, seek, like who were looking for the student teachers specifically, uncovered a whole bunch of unrelated burial sites across the country, and that's what started getting oh, family wow. members to be like, "Oh my god, mm-hmm. like we can, like we have to start looking for these mass graves on our own because clearly authorities who are responsible for doing these investigations have not been, mm-hmm. and there are so many more mass graves that we that are like." easy enough for laymen to find that haven't been mm-hmm. uncovered yet. Um, even now that the hundreds of remains have been discovered in Veracruz outside the port, the federal attorney general's office has not taken over the investigation and are instead offering quote unquote technical support to this volunteer group. Um, and additionally, the attorney general wow. for Veracruz said that their, that the search teams were likely to uncover more remains, specifically in the area outside of the port expansion, but but that authority needed authorities needed quote additional resources resources in order to conduct the massive forensic investigation that would be required. And I just think that's an outrageous mm-hmm. statement to make in light of the fact that the investigation that has been undertaken so far has been done with mm-hmm. zero resources by parents of people who have disappeared. Right. It is just a terrifying thing to imagine a world where kind of the biggest drug war activism that you can do is actually investigating for for mass graves that aren't being looked at by the government. And I hope that they are successful in finding a lot more of these, including a lot of uh, hopefully living missing people. Uh, But we'll definitely be keeping tabs on that. Uh, But for our next story. Uh, kind of a glimmer of hope in in a violent uh, uh, drug-related international scene um, is that a member of the Philippine House of Representatives has filed for the impeachment of President Rodrigo Duterte uh, by a member of the opposition party named Gary Alejano. Uh, So the impeachment is mainly focused on the thousands of killings at the hands of police officers and vigilantes that have been encouraged by Duterte personally uh, under the guise of a war on drugs, uh, but also 
The impeachment papers uh, touch on the killings he oversaw while mayor of DeVal uh, and claims that he keeps secret bank accounts. Uh, so the, the representative, Alejano, uh, has also stated that he may include later uh, suspicions that Duterte has had secret dealings with China, uh, which seems to be a, a big suspicion around there. Um, mm. So... Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about the uh, drug war aspects of this before, but it, it is clear that this is, you know, a much a much bigger thing than uh, than just those killings alone. Yeah, it, it is. It is interesting that this is a glimmer of hope because it's kind mm-hmm. of outrageous how long this has been going on for before like impeachment was even offered. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know how long we've been reporting on this for Sam, like almost a year now. I don't. Yeah, I think it was all the way back in at least June. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't really know what the impeachment processes look like in the Philippines mm-hmm. at all. Um, but what 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 do experts or analysts say that the odds are of this actually being successful? Yeah, so it is really interesting in terms of kind of the symbolic nature of it or the kind of political kind of gamesmanship that's going on uh, because pe- pretty much everyone um, cited by uh, reporters with CNN and some other news organizations are all saying that it's pretty much dead in the water. Oh, no. Uh, because yeah, because so the the party that Duterte is a member of, uh, the PDP uh, Laban, uh, that's a hyphenated group that uh, translates over to Philippine Democratic Party, Power of the People. That was two different uh, parties that merged. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they control the vast majority of seats in the House. Um, and they need uh, to have at least one third of the House vote in favor of impeachment to move it to the Senate. Uh, but they're probably not going to get that, unfortunately. Um, but if they if they did get it out, then it would go to their Senate, uh, where two thirds of the Senate would have to vote to actually remove him from office. Um, so it does seem like a long shot, although the person who introduced it is saying that he's confident that they can do it. But, you know, it's kind of like a, a third party candidate run in like you always have to say you're running to win, even if you're not. Um But it's interesting that where it connects over to is that it helps on the front of the International Criminal Court, uh, where they may be bringing some uh, charges against him. And a requirement of that is that they have to have exhausted domestic remedies before uh, bringing charges against someone. Um, So this might just be, you know, kind of checking off a box of, oh, we tried to impeach him and that didn't work. So now we can do this. So this is helping with outside authorities to be able to say... Um, you know, to, so that the International Criminal, Criminal Court can move forward with its process outside of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if they tried to bring charges against him right now, they might get those dismissed by saying, oh, the, all the domestic remedies haven't been exhausted yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is trying to kind of move that forward. So, yeah, that we can get the international community involved. I do wonder how much... Um, you know, even if if eventually the International Criminal Court does find him guilty or liable for whatever uh, mm-hmm. human rights violations, um, how, what what can actually be done to stop him or remove him from power? As we know from our um, roundtable discussion with Oliver Zaruto um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, last season, you know, Duterte himself doesn't give much weight to what the international um, legal authorities Mm -hmm. have to say 
Yeah. Um, so I'm actually not 100% sure, but when I remember when looking at it when we first started talking about the ICC, when they were kind of beginning to investigate him, was that there are still, I believe, sitting presidents, mostly in Africa, um, that have been like charged and convicted and are still in power. Um, so it may be, you know, like a lot of things... Uh, on the international level, a, a little toothless, mm-hmm. um, but it probably st- will still have huge ramifications for you know their dealings with the United States. It would become very difficult for Trump to be able to justify dealing with him if he's been you know convicted by the International Criminal Court. Um, so hopefully, it could still have some ramifications even if he's not you know imprisoned. All right. Well, this is this is all very interesting. But moving on to our quick hit headlines now. Uh, For our first headline, a bill to allow needle exchange programs in North Dakota uh, has been passed by the legislature and is headed to the governor's desk for final approval. While the program did stir debate within the state, needle or syringe exchange programs are now common in the United States, with more than 200 programs authorized in 33 states as of 2015. And federal funding is also available to assist states and localities in implementing these programs and have been endorsed by the CDC and Department of Health and Human Services. Representative Jim Sensenbrenner, a Wisconsin Republican, wants to use funds from civil asset forfeiture to pay for Trump's wall between the U.S. and Mexico. He claims that it would be making drug cartels pay for it, but in reality, much of those funds come from innocent people. Health regulators in France have given provisional approval to what some researchers are calling a miracle cure for alcoholism. The prescription drug, baclofen, was originally developed and intended to treat muscle spasms. Mm. And on Tuesday, in a 51 to 48 party line vote, Republicans in the U.S. Senate approved a resolution rolling back restrictions on drug testing for unemployment insurance. It had already been passed by the House and is supported by the Trump White House. And moving on now to our weekly forecast, a month from today, the United States Sentencing Commission will hold a hearing on the sentencing for MDMA, which is currently punishable at a weight ratio 500 times greater than marijuana, which means, for example, you can possess or distribute 500 times more marijuana than MDMA and be sentenced to the same length of time. So this would be the first time the U.S. Sentencing Commission reviews these sentencing guidelines in 16 years. The hearing, which was originally scheduled for this past week, was actually postponed due to inclement weather here in the D.C. area. Um, And the hearing can be streamed live online. So, of course, we'll post the link to uh, how to watch the live stream on our website. Um, And the hearings, in case you're interested in watching them from where you are, will go on from 9 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. on Tuesday, April 18th. And amongst the witnesses testifying uh, is going to be Rick Doblin, the executive director of MAPS. And for my forecast is one that we've already talked about a bit on the show, but I'm really excited about because now it's finally this week and it is SSDP 2017, uh, the annual conference of students for sensible drug policy. So we've talked about it a lot on the show. This one's taking place in Portland, Oregon, and the entire TWID team will be there along with many of our regular guests. So if you were on the fence and are thinking about coming, this is the final last bit of encouragement to, to 
book those tickets and actually uh, join us this week. Uh, there will be on-site registration, um, so you're able to come even if it's a last-minute decision. Uh, so it runs from Friday night to Sunday evening, and there will be panels, great speakers, parties, an award ceremony, and the SSDP Congress, where we elect new members of the Board of Directors. So if you're coming, feel free to reach out to us on social media, or you can just find us at the conference. So hope to see you this weekend. All right, and that's all for this week's segment of weekly news and forecasts. As always, we have our eyes on the biggest drug stories um, and headlines from all over the world, but there's so much going on all the time uh, that we might miss your favorite story or favorite upcoming event. So if you have any tips for uh, news, headlines, or forecasts we should um, be giving attention to on our show, you can reach us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter, or you can email Email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. We don't have a paid sponsor this week, but if we did, this is where their commercial would be. Are you listening to this right now? Do you have a cool business, political campaign, website, pet cause, or literal pet that you want us to tell our hundreds of passionate listeners about? Then you're in luck. For a small fee to help cover our costs, you can get your very own 30-second ad that would go right here, be read by me, and be listened to by everyone who's hearing me say all of this right now. So if that sounds good to you, swing on over to thisweekindrugs.org and click on the sponsor button at the top to learn more. Now, back to the show. Hey everyone, it is your friendly podcast producer and occasional co-host Tyler Williams uh, working on our SSDP peer education segment here, uh, which is now for season four, replacing what we've been doing with the drug of the month. Um, This will be happening on alternating weeks uh, with my This Week in Drugs history segment. Um, For these bi-weekly peer education segments, we'll be utilizing the SSDP Just Say No peer education curriculum to deliver student-generated and oriented education to our listeners. So if you're unfamiliar with SSDP, uh, because you've never listened to this podcast ever before, uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, SSDP, is the only international network of students dedicated to ending the war on drugs. At its heart, SSDP is a grassroots organization led by a student-run board of directors, and we create change by bringing young people together and creating safe spaces for students of all political and ideological stripes to have honest conversations about drugs and drug policy. So the SSDP peer education program seeks to empower students in our network to analyze the relationship between drug policy and drug use by providing evidence-based drug information, teaching students to recognize and address dangerous behaviors and unhealthy attitudes, and promoting pro-social and harm reduction-oriented behaviors and attitudes. So we'll be taking some of these resources created and offered by SSDP and turning them into short segments about each drug, focusing on harm reduction and peer education. 
these presentations are really geared for an interactive setting. Uh, so there are certainly some limitations on the format that I'm doing here where you're just listening to me talk. Uh, so we're open to suggestions and changing it up since we're trying something new. Um, send us any feedback you have to thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. If you like it, if you love it, if you hate it, whatever it is, uh, you know, we'll, we really want this to be an enjoyable experience for our listeners. So um, with that out of the way, the last uh, caveat I've got here is that we're going to do our best to present you with facts. But keep in mind that there are a lot of unknowns and a lot of that's due to prohibition and, you know, not having enough research because of prohibition. Uh, that doesn't really apply to this week's segment, which is actually about caffeine, which is another legal and commonly used uh, drug in the U.S. and globally. Um, so we'll talk a little bit first about the history and origin of caffeine. Um so what we've got here is that, you know, some of the earliest records we have, or I guess they're not really records, but some of the earliest known uses are from the Stone Age. Uh, some anthropologists believe the first use of caffeine contain containing plants may have been as early as 600,000 before Common Era. Uh, in the uh, in 2768 BCE, according to a Chinese myth, Emperor Shangneng of China discovered tea while sitting under a wild tea tree with a cup of hot water. A leaf from the tree fell into his water, creating the first tea. Uh, in 960, tea's popularity has grown in China during the Tang and Song dynasties, uh, and the first documented tea houses are founded. Um, 1607, and again, we're in common era here. Uh, 1607, coffee is brought to the New World by Captain John Smith, uh, the founder of uh, Virginia at Jamestown, uh, and also, you know, uh, genocidal uh, harbinger of colonialism. And uh, Canadian historians uh, do contend that it had actually previously arrived in the Canadian side of the colonies. In 1822, the prototype of the first espresso machine is created in France. In 1962, the American per capita coffee consumption peaks at more than three cups a day. So that's uh, all the way from, uh, you know, anthropological understandings of uh, caffeine containing plants up to 1962, where we've got American workers uh, consuming, you know, three cups a day of coffee, which is just too shy of my own average. Um, so now that we've talked a little bit about its history, let's talk about what caffeine is. It's a chemical with stimulant properties found in many plants, including tea, coffee, guarana, um, and at commonly used doses, it's a mild stimulant and cognitive enhancer. Uh, it improves focus and mood. Caffeine is used at dosages ranging from 5 to 200 milligrams, and on average, a drip-brewed cup of coffee contains about 100 to 150 milligrams of caffeine. A can of cola contains 35 to 45 milligrams, and a cup of tea is about 40 to 60. So, caffeine is widely available in both foods and beverages, and you can also purchase it in inexpensive capsules, tablets, powders. Uh, caffeine is legal in every country around the world. Uh, in the United States, it's approved as a food additive by the FDA. Uh, for beverages, the FDA limits ca caffeine content to 72 milligrams per 12 ounces of a serving. Products sold as energy drinks are not limited by this rule because they're currently allowed as dietary supplements uh, rather than food. Uh, caffeine is a xanthine alkaloid with a chemical name 137-trimethylxanthine, 
Uh, and its structure is very similar to the stimulants theobromine uh, and theophylline, um, which are frequently found in the same plants as caffeine. Uh, when it's orally administered, caffeine is readily absorbed by the stomach and small intestine. It has a highly variable elimination half-life, so approximately eight to nine hours in adults. It's partially metabolized by the liver into the active dimethylxanthines uh, into the active dimethylxanthine stimulants, theobromine and theophylline, along with two other metabolites. Uh, caffeine, blo caffeine blockades receptors of the inhibitory neurotransmitter and adenosine. Caffeine blocks receptors of the inhibitory neurotransmitter adenosine, and this effect is believed to be the primary mechanism of its stimulant action. Caffeine also affects uh, GABA receptors, the brain's primary inhibitor, inhibitory neurotransmitter, and I'm so sorry if I butchered any of those pronunciations, doing my best here. Uh, so... Um, Let's talk a little bit about how it interacts with the body, too. We, we spoke a little bit about it, but it also, uh, beyond what we just said, caffeine interacts with dopamine, serotonin, and uh, norepinephrine in the brain, um, stimulating the brain's balance of focus, attention, and pleasure. And uh, yeah, we'll go a little bit into sort of, uh, you know, we always do this, the positive, neutral, and negative effects on the body. Um, so let's talk about the positive ones first, which is uh, reduces boredom, decreases depression, and increased alertness when you're tired, willingness to consider alternative theories, that's an interesting one, uh, increasing physical stamina and reducing perceived exertion, uh, and it may attenuate the response slowing effect of alcohol, which is really interesting, but you shouldn't use that as a strategy, uh, you know, don't drink and drive or don't drink and do anything uh, that you need good coordination for, even if you've had a cup of coffee here. Some neutral effects. Um, research has failed to show improved memory or improvement in complex cognitive tasks, so it's not going to make you a superhuman at calculus, uh, although I certainly tried in high school uh, and college uh, to make that happen. Uh, some negative effects here are that it may increase anxiety and nervousness at high doses or in sensitive individuals. Insomnia, a decreased ability to sleep. Caffeine withdrawal can worsen your mood or cause headaches, flu-like symptoms, feelings of lethargy, and reduce your motivation. Uh, and of course, uh, it can increase jaw tension and bruxism. So let's talk about what a caffeine emergency looks like. Um, this might not be something you think is very relevant, but I know that um, on college campuses, uh, at least where I went to school at UConn, people were recreationally using caffeine powder, which is um, a little more... Uh, which is a little riskier in terms of dosing than, uh, you know, something taken in a drink that's been pre-prepared. And, and if you don't know how to how to measure correctly, you could end up doing too much. Right. So so what does a caffeine emergency look like? Well, it looks like uh, massive anxiety, um, panic, diarrhea, convulsions in extreme cases, Um and, and what should you do if you see someone who's, you know, taken maybe too much caffeine powder or they've slammed a bunch of energy drinks and they're starting to have panic attacks and, and diarrhea and, and, and convulsions, right? So if the symptoms are mild, um, you might be able to wait until the caffeine's not in the body or, or, or treat it yourself. Um, you know, there's some home remedies like drinking water, some mild exercise to kind of get the, the energy going and eating foods high in potassium or magnesium, such as bananas or dark leafy greens. Um, but any sort of chest pain or convulsions should be treated as an emergency and may indicate heart or lung issues. So if you know CPR and, and you're feeling comfortable doing it, that 
may come into play if it's really a heart issue, uh, but definitely call 911 as soon as chest pains and convulsions come into play here. Beyond emergency situations, let's talk a little bit about withdrawal and interactions with some other common drugs. So, you know, withdrawal is going to vary depending on the individual. Um, you know, for someone who is naturally more uh, mentally cognizant, they may have an easier time getting away from caffeine than someone who really needs it to, to be focused. Um, it really depends on how frequently you drink caffeine, right? And that's going to determine a big role uh, in the severity of your withdrawal. Uh, is it a daily basis, a multiple times a day thing? Do you drink it all day, every day? You know, obviously, the more you use, the tougher it's going to be to to not have caffeine. Um, and then the amount of caffeine, right? If you're drinking uh, energy drinks, which are beyond the FDA's limit for food versus having you know a bunch of cups of tea every day, that's going to change too. Um, and of course, there's uh, dependency. And some people become dependent on caffeine for everyday functioning. Um, although it's relatively harmless, the fact is a lot of people use it as sort of a, uh, you know, uh, mental crutch in in some in some instances and you know it improves cognitive function and acts as a stimulant so most people notice improvement in energy and mood uh following the ingestion of caffeine um and if you're dependent on it for functioning uh or if it's become a staple towards helping you stay productive not using it might be difficult uh, as as a person and as a worker um an actual, you know, 30% of caffeine users fulfill diagnostic criteria uh, by endorsing three or more dependence criteria. When a more restrictive set of four criteria were used, as in uh, some other studies, 9% met the criteria for substance dependence. Um, the most commonly reported symptom in a lot of these studies was a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control caffeine use, right? Um, so let's talk about its interactions with uh, nicotine and alcohol, which are really kind of the big ones in this pantheon of, of drugs uh, that people are using with caffeine, right? So um, caffeine and nicotine. Drinking caffeine and smoking tobacco together prompts an intense cardiovascular reaction that can actually be harmful to the body, both in the short and the long term. Um, caffeine dependence can develop if tobacco is used in, in, in combination with caffeine as well. It can kind of potentiate that. Caffeine and alcohol, uh, another interesting thing. This was like a huge moral panic in the news for a while with the with the juice and the four loco. Um, there's there tends to be a higher incidence of risk taking behaviors because their perceptions of the limitations are distorted. They have this extra energy, this extra um, you know mental buzz going on. Um, caffeine gets your body going, increases your blood pressure, your heart rate, and in some cases causes heart palpitations and an irregular heartbeat. Um, but it can also lead to headaches, jitteriness, agitation, or stomach problems. Um, whereas alcohol, on the other hand, is a depressant that slows the brain's functioning and impairs your your ability to walk, talk, and think clearly. So when it's mixed, they don't cancel each other out. You might have thought I was going to say that, but I'm super not. Um, stimulants and depressants don't cancel each other out. That's not how this works. Um, it just puts more stress on your body and it ends up being more dangerous. So so alcohol and caffeine, right, like at low doses of either or both, um, not necessarily a huge risk factor, um, but still some damage can be done and, and at higher doses gets more uh, more dangerous, right? Um, and same with the caffeine and tobacco is, you know, uh, smoking tobacco is not good for you in the short or the long term and same with mixing it with caffeine, uh, which again is a popular combination. So 
I hope this has been educational. I hope this was a good overview of caffeine. Uh, like I said, feel free to email us thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or find us on any of our social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We'd love to hear what you think about the new segments. Love to hear what you think about the new season, what you want to hear about, what you want to see happen. Uh, so anyways, thanks for being here with me and enjoy the rest of your, uh, enjoy the rest of the show. time for our roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing the Minority Cannabis Business Association's Model Legal Marijuana Bill with Jason Ortiz, the policy chair of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, and Scott Cecil, Outreach Coordinator for Students for Sensible Drug Policy and head of the uh, HBCU Outreach Project. Thanks for coming on. Right on. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's good to be back. So we do speak quite frequently on this show about the racial disparities that there have been historically in law enforcement of marijuana laws, um, you know, disproportionately against people of color, um, as well as the existing disparities that we're now seeing in the emerging legal industries, um, especially as far as, you know, some competitive licenses going almost exclusively to white people. Um and we have talked about that very explicitly on previous episodes before, in fact, with one of uh, with Jason's former policy co-chair at MCBA, Shaleen Title. But uh, Jason, just to get us started, um, for people who are not as familiar with the organization, what is the Minority Cannabis Business Association and why, like, what is the purpose behind this industry group? So the Minority Cannabis Business Association is an industry association, so it's comprised of folks that are in the cannabis industry one way or another, whether it's directly mm -hmm. growing the plant or an ancillary business or as an advocate or someone that works on policy. And so we're comprised of all of those people, um, and we're here to make sure that the cannabis industry is inclusive and has uh, low barriers to entry for people of color. And we think that the cannabis industry will be much stronger the more diverse it is, because the more diversity we have, we have different pools of talent to pull from, and we'll create some really amazing things. And so we think it's in the best interest of the industry that a wide group of people are able to access the economic empowerment that will come with cannabis legalization. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so I guess, how did this model bill come about? Um, and how does it differ maybe from model bills we've seen from other um, advocacy groups? in the marijuana and drug policy sphere. Yeah, so this is actually a really fun story between myself and Shalene Title you mentioned earlier. So it was actually a few years ago that the Ohio bill came out where they were going to have 10 specific people own the whole industry. And so when I saw that, I was very disappointed. And I was like, this is blatantly the worst that cannabis legalization could be. So after seeing that, decided to figure out what's the opposite of this? Like, what is the most grass? And that was the bill that a lot of people refer to as like the monopoly bill because it designated or, um, and when we covered it on the show as well, it was like the 10 Kings bill because it is specifically allotted licenses basically to the owners of these 10 specific properties where the um, 
cannabis businesses had to be. So it's like even within the initiative, it designated who they wanted the business owners to be ahead of time, basically, right? Yeah. Well, it actually would put their names in an amendment to the state constitution. Like That's it would literally crazy. say enshrined in law, these 10 people will own everything. And so that was not what I wanted to see happen, especially because I had been an SSDP for a long time and worked on legalization issues since, I don't know, 2006, probably. And so to see legalization happening in exactly the worst way we all feared um, was devastating. And so at the time, I had been out of the drug policy movement for a little bit. But when I saw that, I was like, all right, I got to get back involved. This is getting crazy. And so try to find what the most uh, the opposite of that would be. And actually, D.C. was probably the closest we could come to as far as it didn't rule anybody out because there was no market. Right. So it's just kind of everybody was allowed to do whatever. And the folks that pushed. <laughs> well, not legally, like you can't legally do whatever. But we I mean, and we, we've talked about this before, too, on our show, but it's kind of become like the socialist version of marijuana legalization, because there's a lot of like home growing and sharing. Right. Happening. Exactly. And the folks that led the charge there are much more people of color in D.C. Right. Absolutely. As a higher as a as a jurisdiction with the highest uh, demographic of people of color, I think, of any of the legalization jurisdictions so far. Yeah, without a doubt. And so so that was the closest we came, but we couldn't really say we're just not going to regulate it at all. Right. We, we, that wasn't the best option as far as policy goes. So we had to figure it out. And I actually got in touch with Shalene uh, as someone that I knew knew a lot about this. And if there was a bill out there, which one was it? And so she told me, actually, that there wasn't one and that she thought about it, too. And that the space she thought that we could do it was through the MCBA. And so when I first joined, which was in 2015, when uh, the DPA conference was going on, uh, that was our first meeting, our first official board meeting. And we joined specifically because we wanted to make this bill become a, a reality. And MCBA was very welcoming. And the folks that were involved <laughs> with MCBA were just so amazing and powerful um, that we thought it was a great uh, next step, a great place to do this kind of work with. Awesome. So I do want to pull Scott into the conversation here. Um, so Scott, you have been on our show before as well, um, early on in one of our earliest seasons, and as an outreach coordinator for Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Um, but now you're heading up a new project that is specifically outreach to HBCUs. Um, so what are HBCUs and why did you guys decide that was an important um, you know, part of SSDP's mission or helping to fulfill its mission? Yeah, thanks for the question. And I'm glad you asked me to explain what HBCUs are, because since launching this initiative back in December, one of the things that's been really surprising to me is that there are a lot of folks who don't know what HBCUs have never heard of them. So it's an acronym for historically black colleges and universities. And I think there's there's two main answers here to the question of why HBCUs are important. And that'll that'll illuminate why. I'm heading up this project to try to bring more students of color from HBCU campuses into the SSDP network. So there's two answers here, as I mentioned. I think the first is a matter of access. Uh, I imagine all of your listeners are pretty well aware and familiar with the history of segregation, uh, both within public and private educational institutions. So there's no need to go into that here. But it's also an, econo an economic issue in the sense that HBCUs actually provide an entry point into college for many low-income students of color. So according to a study done by uh, another nonprofit here in D.C. called the Education Trust, 
Um, about half of the nation's 105 HBCUs have a freshman class wow. where three uh-huh. quarters of the students are from low-income backgrounds. Oh, okay. Whereas if you look at the six, uh, the 657 non-HBCUs that were done in the, uh, that were in this study, only about one percent of the students admitted were low-income students of color. Wait, so that's what versus what again? Right. So of the 105 HBCUs, about uh-huh. three quarters of the students wow. were low income. Wow. But then when you look Versus at... 1%. Exactly. Um, so without these HBCUs in place, one is left to wonder where poor African-American students um, who are interested in pursuing higher education would be able to attend schools. So anybody who's listening to the podcast, if you want to go check the study out, if you just Google... Uh, a look at black student success. Uh, it, it gives you all of the data that they compile there. It's a pretty rich, um, you know, amount of data there. So I encourage listeners to go check it out. That's awesome. And actually, um, I don't know if this, this is like a little bit tangential, um, but Jason, you actually uh, used to work for SSDP as well. Um, and outreach to students of color was um, a huge priority for you back then. And it wasn't so much for the organization at the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I don't know if I would say it wasn't a priority. I think there was a lot of um, folks having the discussion mm-hmm. and folks were open to discussing that the problem existed and how the best way to address it. But it was a heavy lift to actually be mm-hmm. able to address it. And so, you know, it wasn't that it wasn't on our minds, but I don't think anybody really had the solution. And the solutions would have required things that I couldn't do by myself. And yeah. so, including lots of other things. So, you know, I think there hasn't been a group that I think has really nailed it yet. You know, I think I've been a part of many different organizations, but as far as reaching out to demographics that aren't traditionally opting in, it's a, just a really difficult thing to do, which is why I commend Scott, because I think it is ripe for potential, right? It's just figuring out what the secret sauce of organizing is going to be and getting them enough support to be able to pull it off. Um, but it is definitely uh, a worthwhile goal. Yeah, and I think... So go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, I just want to say, I think it's worth mentioning that um, one of last week's guests, Jake Plowden, um, unless I'm mistaken, is a member of the HBCU working group. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, so there are some... um, I mean, we have really really great guests, and there's a lot of really great things happening at SSDP. And it's... um, As someone who has been involved with SSDP only for about four years now. It's nice to um, kind of hear the history and see the progress and see how things are moving. I mean, even for you, Sarah, um, you've been involved with the D.A.R.E. committee for um, a lot of your time now, which has kind of paved the way towards this bigger conversation about doing direct outreach, right? The D.A.R.E. is like... um, I, I should know the acron- what the acronym stands for. <laughs> yeah, it's di- right. um, diversity awareness recruitment or diversity awareness reflection and engagement. Um, and it was used to the acronym used to be ORD, which was outreach, recruitment, and diversity. Um, and so on the board, we made the ORD committee. And which year was that? <laughs> that was. 2010 or 11. Okay, that's yeah. We're, we're was, actually with Arena Alexander. One of the really cool things we're working on right now um, inside the committee is an institutional history project, trying to chronicle um, the history of ORD when it was founded and then as it um, existed in the early 2010s and then kind of evolved into Dare. Um, 
where it is now. And it's been really exciting kind of see, then seeing D.A.R.E. branch out with the Monthly Mosaic. And then now we have the HBCU um, and we have a bunch of really exciting conference sessions coming up next weekend. So there's a plug for that. <laughs> Yeah, and we're all going to get get to be able to hang out together in person, uh, like, in a week. Very soon. Basically, in a week. Um, and not just little tiny logos on little screens everywhere. I feel like I have so many things <laughs> that are just tiny little pictures to me. That's true. And on Facebook, we're actually going to, like, be able to move around. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... So I know I took us on like a huge tangent down memory memory lane, but um so get but getting back to the model bill that MCBA just published, so we're talking about big strides in uh, minority involvement. Um, so what exactly does the model bill do to try and get more um, minority business owners involved in the cannabis industry? So there's lots of ways it does do that. I want to do give a shout out to SSDP though, because this model bill like would not have happened if it wasn't for SSDP. Like, I am who I am today because of the training I got and all the folks I met, and a lot of them were part of making the bill. Um, and so, you know, it's great that folks had a kind of um, shared knowledge base for us to move forward on, and that was super helpful. Um, but as for specifics, um, I think the important thing as far as getting more people into the industry is lowering the barriers to entry. And so that'll help lots of folks, not just people of color, but specifically help people of color. And by that, I mean, like, high application fees. And so, like, Connecticut is going to have a $25,000 non-refundable deposit to apply. Wow. Yeah. And so that makes it really difficult for anyone to apply, and especially folks that aren't super rich. And so that is definitely one of the things that we want to make sure we always just make it easy to start a business. Um, the other really important thing is not denying folks based on their criminal history. And this is something that is kind of absurd that we would even consider it, in my opinion. But there are some folks that would... Push. I mean, so this isn't so that so that isn't an absurd idea to a lot of people, you know, outside of our world, right? To want to say, you know, if someone has broken a law and committed a crime in the past, um, especially like these quote unquote drug dealers that our legalization laws are trying to get off the street, then why would we want them to infiltrate the legal industry now that we're establishing two, right? Like this is a question that we often get as people who work in trying to reform these laws. Absolutely. But I think the point of undoing the damage that was done by the war on drugs is to get those folks into the legal market. Like it's exactly the end goal that we would like to see is folks that are currently figuring out their economics through legal means will do it through legal means and contribute to the tax base. And so if we want to do that, we have to push aside all the stigma and all the stereotypes about who is or who isn't a drug dealer and talk about folks that need economic empowerment and how do we get it to them. And that we know if we allow folks to enter a business world where they can actually make some money and figure things out, the easier that is for them, the more likely more of them will take us up on that opportunity. And it'll be better for everybody. I think there's also um, an historical injustice component to this that we should highlight as well, which is, you know, um, I'm just going to push the envelope here and just, just say what I feel um, or what I know to be true. But when you look at the history of of the economic system in, in the United States and even in colonial America, one of the features is the suppression of black bodies and black labor and ex exploitation of black labor. And so when states are, are coming online with these cannabis legalization markets, um, th there's a part of me that just can't help but feel like it's a reenactment of that initial transaction of barring people of color from 
the mainstream economy, but then also exploiting their labor. And mm-hmm. so when you're closing black people out of the, the cannabis market, I, I would argue that it's a continuation of that initial transaction of, of white supremacy in economics. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, uh, you can tie the cultural aspect in here as well. Um, of course, you know, many of your listeners uh, who are not people of color might not realize that for people of color and especially black people in the United States, it's very important for many of us to be able to know that we're able to support black owned businesses Mm -hmm. and purchase goods and services from black owned businesses. And I think that that feeling, uh, that desire to do that is even stronger when it comes to something like cannabis, because it is such uh, an important cultural component for a lot of people and especially a lot of people of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on the economics piece of it, like we have to understand we're creating a new market that is still entering a capitalist society. And so all the pressures that come from any other aspect of capitalism are going to happen in cannabis, including blatant racism, sexism, and you name it. And so we know this, right? Like as oh, we're going hard against capitalism today. Sam's not here to defend it. <laughs> <laughs> not the first time. But I think it's important that especially folks that consider themselves on the left that are pushing for legalization understand the economics of what we're doing. We're removing a tremendous amount of money and resources from urban and low-income communities, and we're pushing it into wealthy white folks. So those folks that were previously making money are now not going to be making that money. And we're going to be seeing people making millions. And so that piece of it like, has to be figured out as we do it, or we're going to make poverty situations worse. People are paying their rent right now with weed money. And so as soon as we legalize it, that is going to affect those communities. And so I think when we think about how to legalize in a responsible fashion, like we have to answer those questions and we have to answer the questions of how capitalism is going to make that process difficult. Definitely. That was like one of the conundrums I faced as like a very young activist. I guess I wasn't that young. It was like five years ago when I was working on the legalization campaign in Colorado. And I just started getting familiar with kind of these racial dynamics behind, you know, marijuana prohibition. And um, I was so optimistic that once we legalized cannabis, like I didn't understand why communities of color wouldn't get behind this 100 percent when I was like, we're going to stop. I mean, this this means people are people. Your people are going to stop getting arrested, you know, Um, like this like net reduces the number number of people who are going to jail for marijuana related activities. Like, why wouldn't you want this? And people would be like, well, what, what are we going to do to support our communities now? Like, exactly as you said, Jason. And I was like, um, well, your jobs will be legal, I assume. You know, I was so naive. Like, I was like, duh, just do the same thing. But now you now it's allowed. Um, and, but, and it's definitely not like and people in California <laughs> still like after, you know, Prop 64, if you're selling a high quantity, like you can still go to jail. Right. A high quantity, like unlicensed without having jumped through all those bureaucratic hoops and paid all the fees to become a part of the system for sure. That, and that's the thing, right? Is if it's, if folks are able to go legit cheaply, they will. If it's really expensive to go legit, they won't. And so it's, seems really clear in that part as far as what the government should be doing as far as application fees, right? To even apply we're just saying it's thousands of dollars. Nobody has thousands of dollars to just put in a maybe I'm going to get a license. Like, that's just mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if we want to talk about barriers to entry in existing, like, medical marijuana markets particularly, um, which have been a lot more restrictive than what we're seeing in the few adult use legalization so far. Um, but for places like uh, New York, for example, where there, there are five companies uh, licensed for the entire state of New York, right? Right. Or um, I want to say 
like Illinois had like a handful of licensees too. Minnesota had two, literally two. Um, it's not just um, the insane application fees like you're talking about, but when you have so many people competing for so few licenses, then it's about who who are the best people you can pay to write the applications for you? Who are the best um, experts or the best political connections you can buy, basically, to ensure that all of these other things, it's not, it's not just cash up front and and a little bit of luck and your darnest hard work and knowledge, you know, that's it. That's not what goes in. I mean, and this, this isn't a secret to a lot of people who I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners have gone through this process, but um, it's it, not fun. But no, I, I it's think not. That's and it, number and, yeah. one problem. Like, honestly, like if we had to like, I mean, there's there's so many important pieces of it, but license caps, as far as economic access goes, license caps are the devil. Like if right. you put a, an artificial limit on how many businesses can exist, it immediately becomes a political buy-off question. But if you say every city should decide what they want to do, if they want zero, they can say zero. If one wants five, they can have five, right? And so folks can decide on a local level. Then it becomes a matter of how can you collect connect with that local community to make it make sense, right? If you say there's just ten and I'm deciding who those ten are going to be, whoever the decider is is going to make a lot of money. Yeah, that, that's all. Those are all great points. And I would add one other piece to this, which is, uh, you know, going back to the consumer side of things. It, it, and please tell me if you disagree here, Rochelle, because I know you'll know a lot more about this than I do. But with so few licensees, like let's stay with the New York example, with only five licensees, um, you know, what does that mean for prices when, when there are only a handful of competitors? Are they going to be as compelled to like have competitive and like affordable pricing? And so that combined with the point I made earlier about people of color wanting to be able to, you know, purchase cannabis from businesses owned by people of color, mm -hmm. that combined with not having, you know, consumer friendly pricing happening potentially because of a lack of meaningful competition. Mm -hmm. I think that those two things together pretty much ensure that the black market is still going to exist inside states that have quote unquote legalized marijuana the way that, that many of them have 100%. done so far. And I think all four of us agree, like part of why we do what we do in our professional lives and as activists is trying to eliminate black markets when it comes to the drug trade for all the reasons that people that listen to your podcast already know about. And I think mm -hmm. what we're seeing unfold isn't, isn't going to do that for us. That's absolutely true. I mean, you can see it all over the country. Look at Washington, right? Like prices are just out of control. And there was a 40 something percent tax by the end of it. So if, you, if it's just all too expensive, it just won't solve the problem. It'll get some people wealthy, but we'll still see all the same problems. And that's why we had to draft this bill to address some of these things very specifically, that there are some types of legalization that don't actually work to address what we're trying to address. And we have the time now to say what bills are better than others. So why not take the time to look at the details, actually draft what we think makes sense, rather than just leaving up to regulators, because the regulators are gonna make it rather simple for themselves. And so I think that's why it's important to have different types of legalization that we can point to. And I think our bill changes the discussion around what does a legalization bill look like? What should be in it? Okay, so Jason, if Connecticut were to pass an adult marijuana um, legalization bill that were your ideal legislation, how would that be better um, than, say, what we've seen in other states? So first, I want to say the bills actually should be seen as more of a buffet of great ideas than necessarily a bill you want to introduce wholesale. Um, you could do that, um, but we wanted to make it comprehensive. And so wherever you would introduce it in the state would be a little bit different and you probably wouldn't take every piece of it. Um, but I think one of the biggest parts for me 
um, is that it creates an Office of Justice Reinvestment. So this is an office that's specifically dedicated to knowing how to best put resources into our communities that have been harmed specifically by the war on drugs. So we actually have social justice workers <laughs> that could go out and um, make sure that cannabis businesses are doing what they say they're going to do and you know having good workplace policies. Um, but this office would be a way for us to actually um, start to undo the damage by the war on drugs. Um, I think beyond that, you would see just a much more open and robust market. Folks would be easier, it would be easier for them to get a job, but also be easier for them to start a business. Um, communities would be more open to having these businesses come in and invest in their um, needs and their you know, infrastructure. And so a lot of the specific protections for folks just make it so that the cannabis industry is going to be a way that brings a better quality of life for everybody. It protects folks that are living in public housing. Um, it protects students that are uh, still on their campuses but are now in legal states from getting thrown out of um, their housing for consuming what is now legal, but the policies prior um, would still kick them out for. Um, it helps to reduce suspensions in, um, in high schools, uh, out-of-school suspensions. So there's a lot of protections from different, for different people and a lot of different ways of doing business that are just spelled out explicitly. All these other bills are very vague. They just say regulate like alcohol or regulate like Colorado. And they don't actually address all the little nuanced ways that the war on drugs is currently harming our lives. And so this bill is more thorough in addressing those specific things with specific policy solutions for it. So I think um, it's just a much more thorough bill compared to what we've seen other places and tries to undo the totality of the damage on the war on drugs and not just legalize and regulate uh, the production and sale of cannabis. So I just have one question um, that I think, Rochelle, you brought up earlier. Um, and, you know, you're it's the Minority Cannabis Business Association. So obviously there's an advocacy component and there's a business component. Um, and those two things are not always going to wind up on the same page. Um, so I don't know if Jason and Rochelle, maybe you both want to speak to this a little bit and the challenges that kind of came came up in the process. Sure, Rochelle, if you want to give us your experience first, I'd be happy to hear it. Um, well, I, so I am a member of MCBA. I don't have an official leadership role, but I did have the honor of attending the policy summit um, that Jason co-organized with Shalene um, and that a whole bunch of other amazing um, people of color, including lawyers, business owners, and activists um, from the cannabis space uh, were invited to attend. It was honestly one of the most amazing marijuana business events I've ever attended because uh, it didn't feel like a typical like industry event. Um, we are and I'm going to this is again like a tangent because you don't need to know this many details, but it was just so like it was just so conscientious. Like this is the most thoughtful event that I've like been to. We were like our even our food, like our food was catered by a local black owned um, business, our, the meeting space that we were in was um, a community and art center in a historically black district of Washington, D.C. It was like basically a warehouse for like youth um, art and like sustainable gardening activities. Like there's a whole combination of things. And it was named after um, like a historic black figure who was actually the first person to do you remember this? It was Matthew Henson. He was the first person to have actually explored the and he Arctic. He looked a lot like Jesse. He did look a lot like Jesse. Jesse Horton, who's the executive director of MCBA, and he was the first person to have explored the <clears throat> Arctic, basically. But because he was um, there along with his white employer, his name is never mentioned in the story of, um, mm. you know, the Arctic exploration. Um, so it was like down to every little detail. And I mean, the the people that were invited to attend. Um, <coughs> 
it was just amazing to see that despite the struggle that a lot of the mainstream cannabis industry event world may have with finding um, minority leaders in our space to be on their panels and provide, um, you know, thoughtful, intelligent feedback about industry or policy or whatever. Like, despite the struggles that we've seen in the mainstream industry to do these things, we were able to get, like, all of these people together to draft this model bill. Um, and it was just a wide, it was such a wide variety. So for me, like, on, on an activist level, like, it was an amazing experience. Like, and we, ha we, we were encouraged to aim for the ideal. Like, if we had the ideal bill that we didn't need to compromise with any, anybody else on, what would this bill look like? And that's what we left with. And I think we were very inspired um, by the brainstorming and, um, you know, community building that we got to experience that weekend. Right on. I love hearing <laughs> that. Yeah. And I think, you know, like from the get go, like Shalene and I wanted it to be not just like the end result was better, but the process was better. Because a lot of things, like even when we think about the bills that currently come out, it was just like, who made this and how did they come up with this language? Right. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to have a very clear answer to that question when we presented our bill. Um, and so, you know, we've, I've have a very si se puede attitude, right? Like, yes, we can, we can get it done no matter how hard it is. Um, and so I think the process of creating a bill was also another, it can be done this way. So anyone that says it's impossible is now wrong, right? We can point <laughs> this very clear event that happened with a beautiful video that shows all the beautiful faces. Um, and so a big part of what MCBA is doing is changing the discussion, right? Like now certain things are just different, right? When folks want to say, how would you do it differently? We have a very clear document to point to with a very thorough process to get there. And I think just being able to show that it can be done now raises the bar for what people of color in cannabis are going to do this year and next year and, and on and on. Okay. That's so, awesome. But, Sorry. But, um, but Sarah's question was about the tension between the activist side and the business side. Right. Yeah. It's not all fun and games. <laughs> <laughs> just mostly. It does, you know, it, <laughs> Because the interesting part was there was the policy summit and then there was the actual board discussion that happened afterwards. And so we then had to come and take this beautiful, huge document that actually started as 50 pages um, and make wow. it a little more manageable. And, you know, we had a weekend where we had a retreat and we handled lots of board stuff. And, you know, we spent a good eight to 10 hours going section by section, line by line, and seeing if there's anything there that folks really, you know, had a problem with or could improve on or could change. It doesn't make sense. Um, it was the longest facilitation I've ever done in my life <laughs> with 10 very powerful, empowered people that had very strong opinions. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> and, and it was great. You know, it was, it was thorough. And I think the end product was really good. Like the response has been really positive. So it definitely made that weekend worth it. But the tension between the activist side and the business side, you know, it's, there's so many moving parts and there's so many folks that have just fantastic intentions and knowledge that it's hard to solidify in any one particular choice where we can have everybody agreeing on it. Mm -hmm. And so it's one thing as an organization when we're just like doing outreach in our own worlds, everybody's doing amazing stuff. But when it comes to this is the document for all of us right now, that's a little more challenging. I think a lot of activist folks want to focus on things the business community might think are a distraction or not directly related to profit. Um, and I think our activist community holds us together to say that these things are very important as a community and how we as as an industry are impacting these communities. So I think it definitely keeps us solid on 
what our goal is and what we're trying to do. Um, while the business folks, you know, are able to bring in tremendous resources and networks and just, you know, institutional power to move things forward, right? Like as activists, we wouldn't have as much power to push policy if we didn't have the cannabis business community backing us up. And so I do think that that intersection is both our most difficult challenge, like to hold it together. Sometimes it feels like it's going to fall apart and it's really difficult mm-hmm. and people come and go, you know, like. It's like two siblings, you know. It's like 11 siblings. It's like 11 <laughs> siblings. Okay, fair, fair. <laughs> and there's a big jar of cookies, right? And like some folks want to work together. Sometimes we all want to work together. Um, how we're going to divide the cookies is another question. But figuring out, you know, that plan, right? Those kids in the room with the candy jar, like how are we going to open this candy jar? That's pretty much the MCBA. And it's been beautiful. We've definitely pushed forward much more than it's been difficult. Um, and I think the difficulties have really been beneficial for us to understand who we really are as an organization and myself as an activist. Like there have been questions that I wasn't sure before I I was an MCBA, how I felt about it. California, Prop 64 was a big one for me of where exactly is my line in the sand of uh, laws that I would not support. So just to follow up on what Jason said, one of the contrasts too between say MCBA, MCBA and other associations that we don't need to name here, Last year, I had a couple of staff members who attended another industry association event in Las Vegas. Uh And rather than it being a group of people getting together, putting their heads together and spending eight hours hammering out, you know, this white paper and then this that eventually becoming this bill. I was sent images of a human being being used as a food serving platter. Right. Do you remember the meat tray? So. I think that little anecdote just maybe will illustrate for the listeners who might not know exactly what we're talking about, the two different mentalities there between the types of groups that are working um, in this industry. To be clear, like a hired, a hired model was like used as a serving tray. They like put deli meats on her and people were like picking meats off of a human body. Um, That's disgusting on like so many different. Have you not heard this, Sarah? No. Oh my god, yeah. Or I have, and I just, like, really blocked it out Ugh. because it's that yeah. disgusting. That um, was a wise choice. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action. <laughs> Since educating people is pretty useless if they're not using that knowledge to improve their communities and make positive change. Jason, if you could have listeners do something right now, what would you ask them to do? I would ask them to share our bill with the folks that are working on cannabis law that they know, specifically legislators, because you want them to see it and actually implement it. But I think anyone that is looking for a more conscious way to legalize cannabis in the United States, that I think our bill sets the discussion in a way that we can actually do some really good stuff. And I think it's more interesting. It's more thorough. um, And it was a really fun process to do it. So I hope everybody enjoys it and gives us some feedback. I guess that's the other thing. Take a look and also tell us what you think. There's a form on our website at minoritycannabis.org. Um, you can go and click on it and tell us uh, how we can make it better. And we will have all of that web, uh, information on our website for the episode as well. So, Scott, if you have a call to action, if you had one call to action for our listeners, what would it be? Well, of course, I work at Students for Sensible Drug Policy. But since that was my call of action last time on season one, episode 17, um, <laughs> I want to ask your listeners to contact um, the new secretary of education, Betsy DeVos, and express to her your support for continuing to fund HBCUs in the United States. Um, you know, Secretary DeVos, uh, 
wants people to have what she and her supporters call school choice, which is basically a voucherization of public schools and and getting rid of the public school system as we know it. And if a consequence of that would also be defunding HBCUs, this is really problematic, not only for the reasons I pointed out earlier, but even if HBCUs weren't um, serving low-income students of color so dramatically compared to non-HBCUs the way they are, even if all students of color that are that are poor were able to get into the non-HBCU institutions, they have a 20% lower graduation rate from those schools. And so, of course, everyone's for choice in, in, a, in an abstract sense, but I don't have a lot of faith that Secretary DeVos wants to continue to fund HBCUs. So uh, hopefully um, I'll ask the TWID team to put some information up on their website. Please email, call, and tweet Secretary DeVos and ask her to make sure that a DeVos education department continues to fund HBCUs. Awesome. Well, that has been Jason Ortiz with the Minority Cannabis Business Association and Scott Cecil with Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Thank you both so much for coming on and speaking with us today. Thanks for tuning in to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, uh, or ideas for the show, feel free to email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or find us on social media at Facebook or Twitter. If you'd like to support the work we do, uh, please become a patron and go to our Patreon page, which you can find at our website at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And of course, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, and share this with your friends uh, so that they can get involved too. Our outro song today is So That's What They Do in College by This Is Pointless. Got the best of me lately. Stupid. Oh, man! It's got nanny in your head!